Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance, helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM, let's create. Well, I think that's part of our job right now to legislate hope to inspire i think activists have done an incredible job at helping us to acknowledge that our hearts are broken and that part of the healing is to get out and take action and express our anger and our frustration and that is the only pathway towards actual relief and eventually hope and enthusiasm That was Hank Willis Thomas. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Last week, Jelani Cobb of The New Yorker offered a journalistic perspective on the demonstrations happening across this country. This moment we're in with the police. Obviously, a lot has happened since then and now. But today, I wanted to call up Hank Willis Thomas to offer the insight of an artist. For over two decades, his work has focused on identity, race, media, and popular culture. The kind of work he makes as a conceptual artist varies from sculptures to photos to mixed media and to public installations. Hank's work has been exhibited in museums around the world, from New York to Spain to Paris to Hong Kong. He's the recipient of the Gordon Parks Foundation Fellowship, the Guggenheim Fellowship. He's one of those people with a never-ending resume that you think must be made up but it's all real. And so today on the show, 
I wanted to try something a little bit different. Since museums aren't really possible right now, I thought we'd make this a kind of guided listening experience. Through the course of this conversation, Hank and I walked through a series of selected works that I think apply to this moment of ours, timely pieces about the past and present. And so, if you can, while you're listening, pull up www.talkeasypod.com. On the homepage, you'll see a big blue button that says, Listen Here. Click that. Once you're on the page, you'll see that we've put together a pretty straightforward experience for you. All the images are listed chronologically, based on when they come up in the conversation you're about to hear. In case you get lost or sidetracked, don't worry, we've added the corresponding time codes so you can easily follow along and look at his work as I did during this episode. If any of this doesn't make sense, email me at talkeasypod at gmail.com. I'm happy to walk you through it. It's not so complicated, but I don't mind troubleshooting, especially for listeners. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, I know it is a different kind of experience. If you can't pull up the website while you're listening, uh, I think you'll still enjoy this conversation. If you want to go back to the show notes and check out the images later, please feel free to do so at www.talkeasypod.com. And really, I know I've said it before, but it bears repeating. Thank you for being here especially right now, in this moment, that you've decided to make Talk Easy part of your week. It means the world to me and to everyone making this show. And now, here's Hank Willis-Thomas. Hank, it's been a few years since we have properly spoken I know you have been on Zoom calls and doing interviews and working over the last week, uh, but I'm curious, where are you at right now emotionally? I think I am somewhere at the anticipation point. That's my daughter in the background. (laughs) (laughs) Like as if you were, uh, someone's about to call a hike. There's a, a lot of tension in the air, and the game has already started, but it seems like there's going to be a new play, and I have to be aware and ready to go. And what do you think the new play is? Depends on who calls hype. <laughs> <laughs> now, the, the, the reality is, are we, I'm not quite sure if we're on offense or defense. <laughs> That's maybe the bewildering question. I can't seem to land on either or, and... I'm sure you've been following the news as much as anyone. I actually haven't looked at the news. Well, there's a period, I think, where I was consumed by it. And now that there's been so much action and so many people out in the streets and so many things happening, I feel like the goal is to keep that going and keep the stories out there and not get caught into one narrative unless it is one that is moving towards progress. And... um I personally think that we just had a huge, we were supposed to be taking a break, right? The great pause, and this is the great awakening, so I'm recharged. I was going to ask you, just as an artist, has your mission statement changed at all because of this moment? I've been anticipating this moment for a long time. 
You have. You know my work. I do, but I, I think for context for people listening, what do you mean by that you've been anticipating it? I mean, this is not a new experience where someone is unjustly killed by the, the people in power and that's how we became a country you know and crispus addicts and others were killed in 17 was it 73 and i do reflect on the fact that often it is bodies of african-american men who inspire these moments but yeah it's just part of the continuum of change and growth in our society so if you know that these opportunities opportunities come up, you're aware. And that the real question is, how much progress can we make this time before we take that one step back? I was looking at Black Is, Black Ain't, which is a film uh, you programmed back when I was at the Roxy. And in the beginning moments of that, Marlon Riggs, who died of AIDS during the process of making that film... He said, uh, because of AIDS, the likelihood that you could die at any moment, it forces you to deal with that and look around and say, hey, I'm wasting my time if I'm not devoting every moment to thinking about how I can communicate to black people so that we start to look at each other. We start to see each other. Where are you on that? Do you feel similar? I think that's where the world is. I mean, I think that's so eloquently articulated you know i heard someone the other day say if we're going to die of covid we're going to die free which really echoes you know give me liberty or give me death and so probably gonna try to use that clip that you that you brought up to highlight you know the urgency of this moment and the intersectionality of this moment there are so many important things about him being a black gay man suffering from a virus during a pandemic um, that speaks to this moment and needing to recognize and acknowledge how these pandemics, whether it be gun violence, mass incarceration, or health crises, largely and disproportionately impact poor people and people of color. And that is undeniably true, right? Whether it's the pandemic gun violence, or mass incarceration. Like you said, they all disproportionately affect poor people and people of color. And yet, I've seen in the media a kind of unending focus on how the looting, the violence, is undercutting the value of these protests. It's, it's fascinating because I think that argument was much more potent in 2005 when Hurricane Katrina happened and hit New Orleans, it, I think, was potent, you know, when Trayvon Martin died and when Mike Brown died. I think people now, especially because of social, social media, can see more of what's really happening on the ground. And when you see images of cops breaking windows and masks, white people breaking windows who don't want to say why or what they're doing, um, you start to realize how often those narratives that we all bought into have been false and how one false narrative could trigger or dismantle the movement. And that's why I think 
I say I've been anticipating this moment because this is a moment where we are wide awake, where a lot more people are aware of the tactics of suppression and misinformation than they ever did before. And I've been studying that for a long time. You know, when I say you know my work, I've been, this the show we met on was a show where I was talking about protest and I was looking at the words of James Baldwin and how things he said 50 years ago were as relevant today. And yeah, thinking about Marlon Riggs and even like 80s movies like They Live, you can see how much information can be distorted. And if you once you do have your eyes open to that, you're always ready. I, I don't think I was prepared to see a man be crushed to death by four people who swore an oath to protect and serve him. I wasn't ready for that. I wasn't ready for police coming into the house of, of a first responder and shooting her in her sleep. I wasn't ready for guys um, chasing and shooting black men who was curious and exercising uh, and then recording it and getting away with it. I wasn't ready for any of that. I wasn't ready for a black man being threatened for wanting to protect foliage while he birdwatched. I wasn't ready for that. But the moment when people had had enough and decided to really push and put pressure onto the powers that be to really make more sufficient optical and systemic change was you know, evident from the moment our president was elected. We haven't seen more civic engagement and public protests, I mean, in the 20th century, for sure, than in the past four years. You say you weren't ready for it. And I was sitting here thinking, well, how could anybody be ready for that? I don't know how anyone could possibly anticipate that that was going to happen. I feel that a lot of people have been saying for a long time, this stuff happens all the time. And it's only when they get caught red-handed on a very clear videotape from five or ten feet away can you be like, yep, that definitely happened. We see what happened with the Central Park Jogger case, you know, 25 years later or 30 years later, where pubescent boys were um, depicted as a gang of violent killers when they barely knew each other and barely knew anything about sex. You know, somehow our country bought this narrative that a bunch of boys would be roaming the park trying to rape white women at the same time that we know what happened with, you know, Scottsboro boys and all the different times in which black boys specifically have been framed and used as as an instrument of terror in the imagination of mainstream society. In thinking about the protests for George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, I want to go back to that I am a man piece you made. For context, throughout the mid-60s, black sanitation workers in Memphis were being paid about $1.60 an hour. And then, in February of 1968, two men died on the job. 
protests broke out, and hundreds of sanitation workers took to the streets in an attempt to unionize. The picket signs for these protesters read, I am a man. You've helped me highlight a very important thing, which is how sometimes you have to talk down to people in power in order for them to hear a simple truth. It's obvious that I am a man. So, you know, metaphorically, that I'm a human being. And so you have to break it down again, sometimes to the most elemental forms of expression, like multi-angle videos of the murder. Things that just are like, really? Black lives matter, all lives matter. And no one is saying, well, yeah, if black lives are part of all lives, then we should probably be out there when we keep seeing these injustices. I've also seen you post about how some of these works of art are on the street right now as people are protesting. What does that mean to you? It means the world to me. I went to high school in Washington, D.C., and I grew up around monuments. And very few of them paid homage to people of African descent or anyone who wasn't Anglo-American, basically. And I wanted to be part of that discourse. And I wanted to put images in the public that weren't about a specific hero, but instead the spirit that might have emboldened a hero into the public. And so I doing like the Afropix sculpture and the unity sculpture and the impending embrace sculpture, all about the spirit of the movements and seeing them out in public and being activated the way that they were meant to be. is just, you know, it's, it's humbling. Your project love overrules in some ways comes from your grandmother, the power of love. Uh, Ruth Willis. Where and how do you see her in your work at this point or in your life? She's central. Well, my cousin Sangha Thomas Willis actually is the one who said Love Overrules. I know that he was inspired, as we all were, and had been by my grandmother, who is 98 years old and still smiling and still loving and still so deep. And uh, she is the essence of my spirit. And everything I do is really in hopes of honoring and carrying on her legacy. How has traveling shaped your perspectives, your work? Going to South Africa and going to Senegal and going to Ghana and going to Berlin, and going to Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, going to Trinidad and Tobago, they each helped me recognize how small and insignificant I am, and how big and awesome the world is. I can choose to engage with the world differently by changing my environment. And some people can do that very well by staying in one place and focusing on themselves. And some of us need to be shown and witness different experiences, different languages, different cultures in order to do that. 
I was hoping, if you're open to it, there are three pieces I've pulled up here. You always do good research, so look forward to seeing what you pulled up. Mm, the one I have here, it's called Every Act is Political. What does that mean to you? Well, that is actually an excerpt from a statement that the French artist Daniel Beren made in the 60s. And the actual work uh, is a replica or variation of one of his sculptures where he, or paintings, whatever you might call them, he would often use stripes as um, his method for communication in his work and was very much kind of involved in the conceptual art movement and pushing the boundaries of what's considered art, what's considered true, what's considered political, and what meaning actually is and was. At the same time, there was global unrest and really, really rich political movements and moments and the work never really addressed that. And I really found that to be a theme in a lot of people's work. Uh, even, you know, great artists like Jasper Johns, who talk, who are known for the American flag and known for the targets, never really came out and said it, what he was talking about. And so as an African-American artist, no matter what I do, if I paint a, a blue square, it's going to be read <laughs> as a political act in a very overt way. And so I've been trying, I've been kind of appropriating the practices and the words of primarily European male artists and European American male artists and looking at the very different way in which it, my work can be interpreted. Does that bother you that no matter what you do, whether you make a sculpture of a piece of cheese that it will be considered political. Does that bother you? No. I, I think it just means no matter what I do, it's going to be more interesting than what someone else does. <laughs> I have one here that is the MasterCard ad that you made of sorts. Well, that was a picture from my cousin Sunga's funeral, the one who said love overrules after he was murdered in February 2nd, 2000. So it's been 20 years since I made that picture and 16 years since I made that work. And it made me cry earlier today when I was looking at it. So it's never not potent. Um, in that piece, which is based off of the kind of, or inspired by the MasterCard priceless campaign where they would list a bunch of things and their costs and then say, a perfect casket for your son, priceless. Um, and it's a picture of my cousin's funeral and my aunt's crying. And really, it is highlighting that even in mourning, we are being marketed to. And the quality of the lives that we have and that we care about um, can sometimes be, I guess, seem to be measured in commodity culture, even after we have died. So... If you have like a mausoleum, you must be really important. Or if you are in an unmarked grave, you know, that is a tragedy. And, you know, if you're somewhere in between, like with my cousin, you know, it's like, did you did they love him enough if they couldn't afford 
the $7,000 box of wood that was going to be thrown in the dirt never to be seen again or could actually be honoring him. These weird questions that come up for people with buying new suits and new shoes. And, you know, this is every day in America, though, that definitely a black mother has to make those decisions because their child was killed by gun violence, either by the police or a fellow citizen. Looking at that MasterCard piece, I didn't know that was your family. And now that I'm looking at it again, it has so much added weight and significance to it. Was making that healing for you? It was definitely cathartic. And it was also scary to have such a personal story exposed and yeah the fact that it's still there 16 years later um it's pretty uh heavy what are you thinking about oh just thinking about the past being present you know how like yeah this this movement is part of a continuum and how much we have to prepare for all different forms of distraction and disorientation because the system is designed to keep us scared and distracted. So like, I I don't find it a coincidence that the largest civic action in the past 50 years happened at a time when we were basically living much closer to the way that we did 50 or 60 years ago, meaning that you know there was no there wasn't 24-hour sports there wasn't like it seemed almost as if like people got tired of watching cable (laughs) they got tired of there was there was no sports to watch there was no place to go to travel to distract yourself you couldn't go buy stuff that you don't need (laughs) it's like it, it was kind of like the perfect storm of like oh wait i just need to like try to like breathe and have the essentials and spend time with my, with my family. And then you realize how fragile and important life is. And when you see a great injustice, you know, I believe that officer, former officer Chauvin's neck was on the, I mean, his knee was on the throat of George Floyd, but it was also symbolically on the throat of, of America. And, and when George Floyd died so horribly, having to narrate his own murder, I, something, you know, America also died, and there's a new one being born. And you have some sliver of hope that it is being born in an image that you and I may like. I mean, I think it, I think it gets reborn often. I think pretty much every time it's reborn, there's a lot of good and a lot more distraction. Number seven that I have written down is a piece called A Place to Call Home, which feels uh, like it should be studied in classrooms when you're growing up. It's a sculpture, but also, I guess you could say a graphic where we have North America and then instead of South America, it connects with the continent of Africa. And as hyphenated Americans, we often 
don't sit in comfortably in a specific place, you know, we're not fully American as the way that we have been taught and we're not fully of our ethnic origin because we may not speak the languages or understand the culture in the way that you know, people who continue to live there do. And so Africa, America only lives in my imagination as a continent in between two oceans. When I put it in context in regards to your work and thinking about the Make America Great Again piece you made, that was a billboard, I believe, posted up in Pearl, Mississippi, uh, which had cops pointing their guns at, at black men, which I could not tell, but but seemed like a still taken from the Selma marches of 1965. But I could be wrong on that. It was a photograph taken by Spider Martin. It's called Two Minute Warning at the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge. That piece, which you seem to have put back into your work this weekend in New York Magazine with the piece you made for them. Yeah, that's the past is present. There's not enough of a discourse between generations. I don't think any of us could really predict what's going to happen any more than we could have predicted that Barack Obama was going to be president two years before, or that Donald Trump was going to be president two years before, or that there would be a pandemic and next week life as we know it would change, or that there would be routine police murder <laughs> that was recorded and, and that would, you know, spark incredible change. There's like, you know, we never know what's around the corner. The last piece I want to bring up is all power to all people. Yeah, so that was a slogan of the Black Panther Party for self-defense. And as part of the Black Power Movement, they helped shape the narrative and the story that we deserved more as Black Americans. And they also saw the intersection between Asian Americans and Native Americans and poor white people and Latinos who were disenfranchised and exploited by the police and the power structure. In Philadelphia, one of the movements that came out of that was called MOVE in the, in the 70s and 80s. And they had frequent uh, disputes with their neighbors, but also the police over their choices to not participate in the system that we have been conscripted to. And Frank Rizzo, who was then the police commissioner and later the mayor of Philadelphia, was notorious for his brutality and his encouragement of brutality against the Black Panthers, but also against MOVE. It culminated in 1986 when a different police chief but in that same legacy, dropped a bomb on a house where 11 members of MOVE were living. And I think 66 other houses burned because Philadelphia is full of row houses. I was invited by Monument Lab, an uh, extension of the Philadelphia Mural Arts Program, to put a sculpture there. And I had always wanted to put a sculpture of an Afropic somewhere in downtown Philadelphia because I had an Afro when I was a kid and it had a fist on it. And I never quite understood what the fist had to do with combing my hair. 
not realizing that we've been taught that our hair was part of the thing that made us weak or made us ugly. And that by quaffing our hair with a fist on it, it was also a form of resistance and growing it out and, and, and making the kinks bigger and louder. And the sculpture was put right next to the Frank Rizzo sculpture in, in, in Police Plaza in Philadelphia across from City Hall. Uh, and it caused a lot of discourse around Philadelphia about what what should really be in front of one police plaza? Should it be uh, a statue to a person whose shadow arch in, in the horror that was reaped on so many Black Philadelphians? Or should it be a symbol of pride? And this week, after all the pressure from all of the protests, the mayor decided to take that statue down. That seemed like a pretty incredible statement. And just, I think, if three or four months ago, Kanye Wiley's rumors of war sculpture of a black person wearing Nikes on a horse was installed in Richmond, Virginia. And then this week, the governor of Virginia, former capital of the Confederacy, removed the statue or put in the order to remove the statue of Robert E. Lee the president of the, well, the general of the Confederacy. And I feel like that is a pretty big deal and a pretty big statement that a work of art can, that is not sanctioned by the city <laughs> can be placed in public and help put, push forward the movement for symbolic change that will definitely lead to systematic change. There's a James Baldwin quote I know you like that says, artists are the legislators of hope, the parliamentarians of possibility. I forgot about that one. There's more to it that makes it even more beautiful. I think that's part of our job right now to legislate hope, to inspire. I think activists have done an incredible job at helping us to acknowledge that our hearts are broken and that part of the healing is to get out and take action and express our anger and our frustration. And that is the only pathway towards actual relief and eventually hope and enthusiasm. The last thing I wanted to ask you, and it has nothing to do with the work, how do you explain what's happening to your child? Oh, good thing she's only one, so she doesn't care. She just like cares that I'm on the phone talking to you, not not playing with her. And I think that's another real important question of how much time do we spend towards this movement, which may need every last one of us to be involved. And at a time when so many people's lives are putting their lives on the line, literally just going out to protest, not only because of police brutality, but also because of the pandemic. Yeah, I want to be there to see her turn 35. And I want when the, she turns 35 for the country that she lives in to be safer, happier, and healthier than the one that we live in now. I hope we will have to explain what this moment was like. Because if we don't, that means not enough change happened. And, you know, I do ask myself, if she asks me, where were you when 
the pandemic happened and the movement for Black Lives was reignited and intersected with the gun violence and the Women's March and Pride marches and the uh, climate march. Like, where were you and what did you do? And I want to be like, I was there and so were you. Hank, thank you very much. Thank you. our show i want to give a special thanks this week to hank willis thomas to check out more of his work you can visit his site at hankwillisthomas.com you can also follow him on instagram at hank willis thomas and lastly if you haven't checked out our show notes for today's episode be sure to do so at talkeasypod.com we put up all the select pieces of art that we discussed in today's episode on our website And uh, as always, this show can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening. But before we go, I want to talk about something for a second. The commitment we've made on this show, Talk Easy, since it started in 2016, has mostly gone unspoken. It was not even explicitly articulated when I created the show and when I, along with many others, continued it. Our consistent amplification of black and brown voices, of women, is not an accident, but it's not so calculated either. The show is not only the product of who I am, but the people around me who help to make this podcast each week. They are young people and older people. They are mostly women. They are white, black, Asian, Latino. They are Caroline, Janixa, Nikki, Krishna, Kiran, Andre, Tim, Patrice, Kat, Ian, and then another Ian, Deja, Dylan. I bring this up today because in thinking about how we proceed forward, and we will collectively have to proceed forward, I think it's time we start holding the media we consume accountable. Last year alone, 150 million people in America spent over 300 hours listening to podcasts. On average, it was about six to eight hours per week per person. That is to say, podcasts, radio, are integral parts of our lives. They teach us, inform us, move us. They matter. And you know what? They could be better. They could be so much better. And one of the ways I think they can be better is by looking at not just the hosts of these shows, because these hosts are not going anywhere. Mark Maron, Dak Shepard, Joe Rogan, Bill Simmons, all white men. They do the same kind of interview work we do here. They're not going anywhere. They're staples. But forget their voice for a second and look at who they feature each week. From my perspective, the guests on an interview show come first. To have someone on your show is to shed a light on them and their work. And if you look at it, across the board... These programs primarily feature white, male, straight guests. These are the people with their respective platforms that they deem important, that they ask you week after week to listen to, to care about. Let's think about that for a moment. 
These are shows that have a listenership with millions of people. And for the most part, they are telling you that the voices they want to amplify are white, male, and straight. This may not sound like much of anything. It may even sound trivial, like a small issue in this big moment. But think about how much time we spend consuming and listening to podcasts. These conversations, if they're good, stay with us. We think about them. Talk Easy isn't perfect. We've come up short. I've sounded tone deaf. I've had my fair share of white men on the show. There's nothing wrong with having white men on a show. But I'll tell you, as an independently operated podcast, we've been clear from the beginning that people who don't look like me have a place on this show. In fact, in the interest of transparency, here's what our show looks like. Since April of 2016, we've done 174 episodes. 60% of them are with men, 40% with women, and 42% with people of color. It's not enough, but it's a start. These are real numbers, and most importantly, they are real people. And as we emerge from this critical moment, this tipping point, where institutional change can and should be made, we need to think about what progress looks like in our media. We can't intermittently consider black life on our shows. We can't. Think about the kind of subtle, unspoken messages we are sending people of color when that happens. When you look through the backlog of shows like WTF or Armchair Expert or Joe Rogan or Bill Simmons or You Made It Weird or any of these huge podcasts, podcasts I like just fine, by the way, what do you see? What I see is a select, homogenous group of people they've rendered important. They've told you that these are the people that matter to them. And you know how you know the programming says something? Because it's consistent. Crunch the numbers because we have, and they're staggering. They are fucking staggering. White people need to have all kinds of conversations with white people about race. Uncomfortable, difficult racial conversations. And then they need to have all kinds of conversations with people of color. Not only when there's tragedy... Not only when the fragility of black life is in the news, not only when there's protests, but all the time. And these conversations, by the way, should not exclusively focus on their black and brownness. I can't believe I have to say this or, or feel like I, I ought to say this. And I understand some of you listening are thinking, well, hell, I kind of like those shows. I might like those shows more than this show. That's okay. I got nothing against those shows. I really don't. I just think we can do better. And the hosts and producers of these programs can tell you all they want about how the guest list is not intentional, that it was an oversight, a subconscious blind spot of being white. But fuck that. If you're not intentional about the work you're putting out, then what are you doing asking people for their time each week? The uncomfortable truth is, and I know it will be an unpopular one, I may even receive some criticism from these shows, from the people that make these shows, but the uncomfortable truth is, they are choosing to not have certain people on. And if they aren't explicitly making that choice, then they have a larger problem on their hands, and that is, their decision has been made for them, by their own whiteness. Their decisions are a given. And the moment any of us, no matter what you look like, start making decisions because 
they seem preordained or comfortable or, well, that's how we've always done it. We're screwed. So if you're listening, I hope you continue to challenge us on this show to be better. And I hope we can do the same for you. Coming up, we have Run the Jewels, Dolores Huerta, Holland Taylor, and Dr. Cornell West. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. Stay safe. Keep fighting. And I'll see you next week. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.